0: It's uh, <clears throat> weird to be back. <laughs> uh, it's been a weird year. Everybody knows that. I'm not telling you anything new. It's kind of being, looking at you this morning, it's kind of like being at a, a stagecoach robbers convention. Uh, I'm glad I didn't bring my wallet because everybody's wearing a mask, but I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book uh, of Isaiah, chapter 26. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna share a verse with you in just a minute and kind of put it into context. Uh, When I was a young Christian, when I came to faith in Christ, uh, I was taught by people who discipled me that it was important for me to be immersed in the Word of God because I had had pathways, natural proclivities uh, that my mind would follow according to my personality, my upbringing, my culture and that I needed to reprogram my thinking to align my thoughts with God and to view the world and my circumstances the way he saw it because the way God views things are often distinct from the ways that that we view things. Now, as a young guy, uh, it was a discipline. And by that, I mean sometimes I would cursely, you know, I would read through Scripture uh, just very lightly because I feel like I had so many things to do that I didn't really have a lot of time to give attention to it. But, you know, just out of out of obedience, and I wanted to be obedient to the Lord, uh, I'd read Scripture. And uh, then other times, you know, there were so many things going on in my life, I just kind of, you know, didn't read Scripture. I just passed on. But it was, you know, kind of a habitual thing that I did. But as I got older, <laughs> and life began to fall apart, <laughs> uh, as I began to face and go through more storms in life, you know, losing people I cared about, seeing dilemmas, you know, when you're young, you think you can change the world, and at some point in time, you realize you're not gonna change it, that it's essentially been the same since the beginning, and uh, people have tried to change it, but there's this this sin issue, this rebellion against God issue that's in all of us, it causes cultures always to be in conflict, Uh, and so as I begin to uh, realize how frail I was and how out of control I was in life with sicknesses and illnesses and dilemmas, Uh, the Word of God began to be a kind of an anchor, a mooring uh, into sanity for me spiritually. And what I found is that it was like reading a love letter from somebody I was deeply in love with, and I needed needed the reassurance. I needed the continuance. I needed the relationship. I didn't need to face today and whatever troubles I might face without the presence of God. And I couldn't cultivate the presence of God because I had this personality and proclivities and I had a past way of thinking unless my mind was being transformed through his word by his presence. And one of the the traditions I've developed recently, and uh, traditions can be good or bad, is that I I, I sequentially read through uh, different segments of the New Testament and the Old Testament in order to have kind of a balanced view. And usually at this time of the year, I turn to the book of Isaiah. Now, the reason I like the book of Isaiah uh, is it was written 400 years before Christ. And uh, a, a part of Isaiah, a significant part of Isaiah, is prophetically looking forward to a Messiah. Now, th- this, this is the context I want you to miss. Most of Isaiah is being written at a very dark and difficult time. That I have ignored uh, for much of my devotional reading. I love to read about uh, the coming of Jesus because number one, it was written 400 years before the birth of Christ, and it so accurately portrays who Christ would be. Now, it's interesting uh, to say that when, when, in the first century when Jesus was born, they were looking for a military Messiah who would overthrow the injustice in the power of Rome. Now, for those of you who've grown up in the church uh, you, you, you may remember at Christmas time or around Easter, we'll preach through the scripture where they laid down the palm branches when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for Passover and they cried out, Hosanna. If you know anything about first century literature, that was the cry of the Maccabees. In other words, that was the cry of revolution. And what Hosanna would what Hosanna literally translate as is save us. And we, we kind of read that and say, oh, the people of Israel realized, you know, recognized Jesus was the Messiah. And so they're saying save us. But the problem is three days later, they crucified him. So that doesn't wash. It wasn't that the crowd recognized Jesus as the Messiah. They were hoping that Jesus would overthrow the repressive government that was currently in power. So it's like, save us from this political climate. Save us, restore us to the way it was when King David was in power or when Solomon was in power. So they had all these images of what a Messiah would do, even though Isaiah paints this picture of a coming suffering servant and that he would be distinct. He would be a Messiah not like what Israel expected or even wanted. And so it kind of makes me think about what, what does it mean for the church in the context in which we live in America. Now, if you if you read the rest of Isaiah, which honestly has always just been a bridge for me to get to the messianic passages about the coming of Jesus. I've always read about the troubles and the kings and the, uh, the wars and all the things that were going on in the life of Israel. It's kind of just like, okay, <clears throat> I can't skip all of these passages just to get to the passages I want to read. But over these past few months, as we've kind of seen the tension increase in our country and we've seen all the things that are going on, You know, I begin to realize something I kind of know, but sometimes you have to remind yourself is that history is cyclical, it doesn't change. There's nothing you're going through right now, that somebody else in the world is not going through. I think most of us, we know that. Sometimes we feel very oppressed. We feel very weighted down. But the reality is, whatever difficulties I'm facing, there are other people that are facing at least as extreme difficulties as me, and many times much more grievous than me. But the same thing that nations go through and that uh, cultures go through, we we can go somewhere back in history and we can find that same pattern because we seem to be uh, capable of being condemned to continue to do the same mistakes over and over and over again as human beings. So uh, Israel was kind of in uh, three categories or three states And then all of a sudden, this passage I want to read to you, Isaiah makes this statement, and I want to make an application this morning. But let me just kind of give you the three kind of characteristics of Israel. Number one is they were in decline. As a nation, by the time Isaiah spoke, the nation was in decline. Now, People would, could argue about that like the way they would today Whether some would say, no, we're strong, we've got a strong military, we've got this, we've got that. But the reality was that historically, the nation of Israel was in decline. It was in economic decline. And if you, read, if you read the text in Israel, it was exemplified by the rich became richer and the poor became poor. There, there was a divide, which if you go back in the Old Testament, Uh, God had been very clear to the nation of Israel on how they were to treat foreigners in their midst, widows and orphans, the least of these. But what had happened by the time uh, that uh, Isaiah came along, uh, the judges and the politicians and the priests had become very, very corrupt. And they were using the different political fractions that existed in Israel uh, to stir people up. Uh, to make themselves rich. And so, uh, Isaiah, you know, in our context, Isaiah condemned the Democrats and he condemned the Republicans. He, he, he condemned the whole political system as being unjust because they overtly were ignoring or twisting or using the laws of God, which always were concerned about the weakest in their midst. And so uh, it, it, was a, it was a decade or longer of decline. The second characteristic, it was a time of division. Unless you're a New Testament scholar or somebody that's been in church a long time, by this time, uh, the nation had divided into northern Israel, which uh, shortly would be invaded by Assyria and destroyed, and Judea. Now, this was family. Now, America is a pluralistic culture. It's, it's, it's amazing that we've stayed together as long as we've stayed together. But that wasn't true in Israel. They were brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and nephews, and yet they weren't speaking to one another. Now, they they were not uh, in a shooting war, so to speak. Uh, but they were in a war where they didn't have anything to do to where they had their own administrative justice systems and they had their own kings and rulers. And essentially, politically, what, what northern Israel would do is they would say to the nations around them, why don't, you, why don't you go and invade Judah? And what the Judeans would say is, why don't you come along and, and align with us and make an alliance and go and invade Israel? So there, it was a division of family. And over the years, uh, they had grown literally to, to hate one another. Uh, you, know, I, you know, one of the things that is really troubling to me is men and women that I know that uh, are, are in the household of faith over the years that I've known as a pastor. When I read their blogs and I read their postings on Facebook, you know, it just, I, I, there's, there's hate. I mean, there's vitriol. Uh, name-calling, uh, you know, things that I've never, I've seen, we've lived in other parts of the world, where well, that was normative. I mean, I, I've seen that before, but I've, I've never seen it in America. We could we could live somewhere else and say, well, that's just part of the culture. But now all of a sudden, we're in a culture where people seem to be not speaking to uh, people. I, I noticed the other day that uh, there was a women's group uh, that had been formed because they were married to deplorables. Their husbands were on the different political stream, and they were coming together as women because they no longer spoke to their husbands. I mean, so, I mean, when you got that type of division going on in a country, uh, it's, it's a really frightful thing, and, and, and we're there by all it seems. And the third characteristic of Isaiah during this time is that it, everything was diminished in regard to faith. Now, Israel had moved away, the northern kingdom had moved away from God a long time ago. Uh, their times of worship on, uh, on the Sabbath, they played golf and went to the beach and, and they did softball. I mean, what they really didn't do any of those things, but they did something, but their hearts weren't affixed to God any longer. I mean, it was just, it was just over. Uh, Whatever places where they worshiped were places that were abandoned. They had moved on from God. They looked like the cultures around them. Now, Judea Judea was different. They were still religious. Uh, They still got together. They still celebrated their their religious uh, ceremonies. But what God said in the book of Isaiah is I hate it when you get together because you have religion, but it's not transformative. And what God was saying is, you you still go to church, but it hasn't changed your life. What's the difference? And so you've got two different cultures. One that is still very religious. They still go through the form. They still have their traditions. The other part of the country has just kind of walked away from it all. But God isn't pleased. He's not involved in either one. so there was this, this sense of decline in regards to their faith and their relationship with God. Now, what happened is during this period of time is these three pathways begin to emerge. And really, we could call them almost two freeways and one little wooded path. And the challenge this morning, as we face an uncertain future, and I hope for the best, and I know you do too, I hope you do. Uh, for our country and for our citizens. But nevertheless, uh, we, we, we don't have any control over that. But, but my hope is, is that you'll find the path that Isaiah is prescribing. So right in the middle, or almost in the middle, in chapter 26, there's this wonderful passage in verse 3. And I want you to look at it. Because it is in the midst of decline, division, and a nation that is diminished. And he says to the people of Israel, You will keep in perfect peace the mind that is dependent on you for it is trusting in you. So right in this midst of this cultural storm, Isaiah says there will be a people who weather this storm, who will offer hope in a place in a culture of darkness. And that is in reality has always been the role of the church in every culture in the world today where there's oppression and persecution, which is most places, where there's hunger and starvation and injustice, which there's most places, the church of Jesus Christ has offered a future looking forward hope of a redeeming God who's coming to bring justice, something that man couldn't do for himself. And so what, what Isaiah is saying is we go through this hard time for the mind— and the, God, the Bible tells us that the, Bible, the battle for our culture, the battle for our souls, the battle for you and I takes place in our minds and our hearts. But the mind that is set on God, irregardless or regardless of the storm that is raging outside will be kept in perfect peace. Now what I wanna talk about this morning is the, is, is the competing paths of America. Uh, this this is just kind of where I'm at. My wife and I, long, uh, years ago, uh, decided not to watch any more news. We don't watch Fox, we don't watch SNBC or NBC or CBS. You say, "Well, Joe, you just chosen to be ignorant." No, <laughs> we haven't chosen to be ignorant. We we've got our own news sources. I've learned how to I've learned how to read clickbait titles. Yeah, but I do know I do, I do keep up with what's going on in the world. But what I begin to realize, because having lived in other culturally divided cultures, is that the news media was attempting attempting to formate and to manipulate me to gain an advantage and gain an allegiance in my heart. And as a follower of Christ, you know, I don't want to be manipulated by the culture that I live in. I want to live for Christ. I want to follow Christ. I don't know what that means, but I I know that it means that we who follow Christ are always swimming upstream in a culture that's raging against us. We're not going to be on one of these two freeway pathways. Have you ever on Friday evening tried to go somewhere in Asheville on the freeway at five o'clock? Have you ever wondered where did all these people buy all these cars and where in the heck are they going? So you've got got freeways going west, you've got freeways going north, you've got freeways going south, and no one's going anywhere but everybody's there. And so that's kind of like where we're at. There are these freeways that are pressing into our culture. We're not the first culture that has experienced it, but for our younger people and for our older people, for young people, they've never known it before. And for our older people, we've never seen it before. Uh, But the reality is uh, the freeway is becoming more and more filled every day. And you and I are forced, we will be forced to make a choice. The first freeway I want to talk about is the pathway of anger. Is, is there anybody in America anymore that's not outraged? I turn on the news and, and I turn on the left and they say, you should be outraged. And I turn on the right and say, and what do they say? They say, you should be outraged. So then we get together and you're outraged and I'm outraged. That's cute, isn't it? I mean, that makes for, for a very civil conversation. I'm outraged. I'm going to march. I'm going to fight. I'm going to destroy. I'm going to do whatever because my side has to win. Outrage, rage, anger. You know, the Bible has a lot to say to those of us that are followers of Christ about anger. The half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 1, verse 19 says this, My dearly beloved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger for man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Now, now now what James is saying is anger is a very normal emotional reaction to injustice or the perception of injustice. Now you know the difference. Injustice is when it's real And the perception of injustice is just when I think something is true about my neighbor or about what somebody's saying or thinking or what they've done, but it may not be true. And we see our culture on both sides trying to align people towards this sense of outrage and anger in our culture. Now, the interesting thing for us as believers, those of us that are believers, what James is saying is it doesn't avail the righteousness of God. In other words, nothing good comes of it. It's a normative reaction. It happens. We all feel anger. But when you give in to that anger, when that anger is stoked, when the logs are continuously thrown on the fire, it is, in the end, it is destructive, and it doesn't accomplish the good of God. When God talks about righteousness, it talks about being, he's talking about the righteous relationship or a relationship of being right with God and being right with our fellow man. That is not accomplished by anger. So when you're told you should be outraged, I just want to tell you prophetically, it's a lie. Outrage is destruction. It it will consume you. It will destroy those that love you. It will divide your families. It will divide you from your schoolmates. It will divide your colleagues at work. It does not, in the end, lead to productivity. Now, I will say this. Anger, if it's fueled by love, you know anger is a fuel. I mean, long before all this stuff started happening in our country, I, I ran into angry people. Have you ever run into a person who's just angry? I Had a bunch of relatives. We came together on Christmas Eve and you know, every year they were angry. They were angry at management. They were angry at the city council. They were angry at their wives. They were angry at their husbands. And so we just sat around on Christmas Eve talking about how angry we were. And I can remember as a child just thinking, I don't wanna be here. These people are just mad. And now, folks, here we are. We have made, we have elevated our country anger as a virtue. That's how far we have fallen as a nation. Now, anger as a catalyst towards motivating us to love for change is a good thing. When I see injustice and it anger rises up in me, and because I want the betterment of my fellow man, because I genuinely care about my neighbor— then, and when it causes me to act on behalf of my neighbor in love, in the, in the way that Christ would have me to act, then anger was a good catalyst to get me moving in the right direction. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the type of anger where people pick up weapons and begin to destroy one another. Do you know that the month of August, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, there, over the month of October, more guns were sold in America than any other time in our history, in any month. Well, part of that is people are just angry. They're just mad. Scripture is very clear to warn us that anger in the end is toxic. In Psalms 37, verse 8, the psalmist says, Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. Do not let them provoke you. It can only bring harm. But he also refers in that verse to justice. If you're concerned about justice, for evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. What God is saying is if you're concerned about injustice, God will bring justice. You can commit those people who you think are uh, doing that, which is evil, into the hands of God, and God is able to deal with that individual where your anger is not going to avail anything. I love I love one of our cultural icons. Some of you that are older, Billy Bob Thornton, great philosopher of America. He says, "Anger is like sleeping with a bobcat. Nothing good will come of it." You know, we get we get to this time of the year and we start adding blankets to our bed, and it gets cold. We turn down our heat at night, save a little money, and you get out of the bed and you snuggle. It feels so warm. Well, you're not gonna you're not gonna take up. You're not gonna say, "Here, kitty kitty." You're not going to invite a bobcat into your bed because you know that in the end, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. It's going to tear everything up. Now, church, I'm just kind of telling you as a church, as the brothers and sisters in Christ, anger is not to be who we are because it is not who our Savior is. It is not who our Messiah is. When he was crucified with injustice, all of his confidence was in his father who was about to execute justice. We do not understand the mystery of how God works, but we do know that all the people that are around us that are angry, they need God in their lives. And so if we're part of the problem, you and I certainly cannot be, as the Church of Christ, part of the solution. So one of the paths of America that seems that we have been been set on, we're being manipulated by the media and others' voices out there, is to constantly be angry. And the Bible warns you, it will consume you it will destroy you. In the end, it will not be to your benefit, your neighbor's benefit, the culture's benefit, or our country's benefit. Number two, the second pathway is the pathway of fear. Now, I mentioned the gun purchases. Now, the interesting thing was there was a unique statistic that came out in the October gun purchases. This is the first time in history that more women bought weapons than men. So in America... By tens of thousands, the women of America are flooding into the sporting goods stores to buy weapons. Now, do you think it's because they've all become squirrel hunters? Why are women arming themselves in our country? Because they're afraid. We've created a culture where our women and our children are fearful. Now, we understand the evilness of humanity. We understand the proclivities of man to use those type of things to gain an advantage. But shame on us as followers of Christ that we would give in to this culture of fear. So I read through my Apple News aggregate, my Google News aggregate. I've learned to read the clickbaits, and, and so much of it is fear-based. It is using fear to gain from you a leverage, an advantage to use you for, to advance their purposes. Church, we've got to be wise to the culture that we live in so we can speak to the culture if we're immersed in the culture, if we're just caught up in this culture that has become toxic, then you and I do not have any ray of light. We do not have any hope. We do not have anything to offer anybody. We become part of the problem, part of the darkness. The Bible over and over again tells us to fear not. And I almost feel like I have to say as an American in this culture that being fearless is not arrogance, nor is it carelessness. I want you to hear this. Being fearless doesn't mean me taking up weapons and arming myself and strutting around in the streets acting like I'm brave. Arrogance is not fearlessness. It's certainly not biblical fearlessness. Nor is it carelessness. I'll just give you an example. The coronavirus. I'm not afraid of the coronavirus. My trust is in the sovereignty of God. But I've got a wife who has comorbidities and asthma and lung problems, and I love my wife, and I'll do anything to protect my wife. And I've got a little granddaughter that she was born with all kinds of issues in her life. And at the age of 11, if she was to get coronavirus, the doctors have already said it could easily take her out. I love my granddaughter. I don't wear a mask because I'm afraid. I wear a mask because I'm in love. When I wear a mask, it's not only for my wife and my grandchild because I know that every one of you or most of you, you've got somebody in your life, whether it's a neighbor or family member, that faces the same type of dilemma. And as a Christian, it is not about my rights. It's about your need. And so in America, we don't need to see fearlessness as some type of... You know, arrogance or a bumper sticker on the back of a car. And we certainly don't need to see it as carelessness. But what it is, it is a confidence, a bedrock, sure confidence that in the midst of the storm, our God is able. We do not need to fear what is coming. God will still be the sovereign king of the universe. You can still sleep at night because God does not sleep. So fear And anger is not a path for the follower of Christ. I love this statement. Fear does not empty tomorrow of its troubles, but it will rob you of today's joys. Everything God has created you for to experience today, oh, taste and see that God is good. You will miss if you're living in the anxiety of what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen on Tuesday, what happens if I lose my job, what happens if my bank closes, what happens if all these things happen. God doesn't call us to be the victims of a thief that he's already exerted control over. Let me just kind of finish by saying this. There There is another path, but it's not freeway. The older I get, I I spent a lot of time as a young man in a city with seven million people uh, that was very cosmopolitan, and a lot of people walked and moved, and you were always kind of, you know brushing up against people. And we loved it. but the older I get, the more I like, I like the old path. I like, I like to be in the mountains. I like to take that pathway where you walk, and you don't see if you don't see anybody, that's fine, you may see a few people. And this is exactly what Isaiah is saying to the people of Israel. He's saying there is a deliverer that is coming. But in the meantime, there's a place of peace. But church, it's a choice. So, so look, let me say this. Our world is not going to find peace. I've lived around the world. I know history. Wars, rumors of wars, injustice. That's just, that's just I mean, I wish it wasn't so Every generation is idealistic, and then we find out that we can't change the hearts of man. It's just it's who we are in our rebellion against God. But what God says, in the midst of this world, you can have peace. You can have personal peace and you can be the transmitters of those peace. You can be an island of peace. You can be an influencer of peace. You can remember in the Beatitudes where Jesus kind of exemplified what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. He said, blessed are those who are angry. Blessed are those who are fearful. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, blessed are the peacemakers. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot be a peacemaker if you're not at peace. Many of you will claim to be Christians, but you'll never know the gift of God's peace. Jesus, before he was crucified, the disciples are beginning to understand that the outcome of Jesus would not be him ascending to a throne. It would not be the return of prosperity. It would not even be the overthrow of the injustice of Rome. It was he was a different Messiah, bringing hope to the nations, to all peoples. Uh, But he said this in John chapter 14, verse 27: "Peace I live leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful." Now, peace is the word as the world gives. He's contrasting the two types of peace. Peace as the world gives is when everything goes my way. When my side wins Tuesday, I'll be at peace. When my wife finally understands that I'm right, she's wrong, I'll be at peace. <laughs> Nothing but trouble. <laughs> when, when my boss understands my value, I'll be at peace. When I get what I want, when I get that guy, when I get that guy, you know, whatever it is, when this happens, I'll be at peace. But the listen, I'm old. I was once young, but now I'm old. But the circumstances of life will navigate in such a way that it will rob you of the control, the little control that you think you have. Jesus said, my peace is not like the world's peace. It's been said like this, that a Christian is like a fish that lives all of its life in the ocean. It is surrounded by salt. But when you catch the fish and you cut into the flesh of the fish, there's no saltiness at all. You and I live in the world. We are surrounded by fear. We are surrounded by anger. But it's not to be in you. It's not to be in me. Because it's the gift of God. Now, you know, there's something about a gift that it has to be received. Have you? I don't know this is probably a bad confession, but one of my favorite Christmas my my wife she she's sweet, she loves Jesus. She likes it's a wonderful you what's know, the it's a wonderful life. I like it's a is it called a Christmas story where the kid wants to be begun? You want know that's I mean? a horrible. Don't let your children watch that horrible movie. I came back from overseas and in I watched that movie for the first time and as a kid. I remember I wanted a Crossman CO2 BB gun. And my dad was fine with that, but my mother would say, you'll shoot your eye out. I don't know where they got that culturally, but it was, it was part of my experience is that I wanted that so bad, and my mother didn't want me to have that. And the two things I wanted in life was the Crossman CO2 BB gun and a motorcycle. Now, my dad got me the Crossman COT, and my mother got me the motorcycle, but it turned out to be a toy motorcycle, which she put under the Christmas tree, which I didn't find funny at all. <laughs> but you remember the story, if you saw the movie, he, he was so disappointed because Christmas morning came and went, and his, his desired gift wasn't there under the tree. He, and so at the end of the day... His father, who knew where the gift was, he said, oh, what's that over there behind the mantle? And all of a sudden, the son, he went and he unwrapped the gift, the BB gun, that he had wanted for so long. He almost missed it because he didn't know how to receive it. He didn't know where it was. And and I'm telling you that what I'm seeing is that many people in the church of Jesus Christ have the uh, the gift of peace, but it remains under the tree unwrapped. What does it mean to unwrap the gift of peace, the path of peace? Well, let me just kind of mention this because there's no easy way to say it other than the fact that it has to happen. The gift of peace is acquired by the believer as we allow God to transform our minds and our hearts to align with his mind and his heart. If you're going to walk out of here this morning and you're not going to dedicate yourself to fill your life with the thoughts of Christ and the thoughts of God, then you will fall a victim to the anxieties and the fears and the anger of this world. Every morning, every morning, I've learned to delight in meeting my master and my God because he comforts me and he strengthens me and he walks with me, not because I'm a good person, but because I am a desperate and needy person. And if given to myself, I would give myself over to the path of anger or I would give myself over to the path of fear. But that is not the hope of the nations. The hope of the nations is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so, church, it is time for us in this serious and sober time in America to ask ourselves the question, will we be a part of the problem or will we be a part of the solution? Will you be the peace of God in a dark place that there might be light and darkness, that there might be hope and despair. Will you choose to walk with the King of glory, to think his thoughts, to think and to feel his emotions and his compassion for the left and for the right? Will you weep for your nation? Will you care for those that are angry? Will you bring peace to those who are in fear? Will you be the church of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a time of path choosing for you as believers. We will fill our hearts and minds and unwrap the gift of Christ, the peace of God in times of storms. Or you and I will fall victim into a culture that is descending into darkness. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we just gotta choose. Sometimes Joshua stands before the people of Israel and he draws a line in the sand and he says, Choose ye this day. Some of you by not choosing, you've chosen. You either will follow the prescription of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but allow your mind to be transformed by God. If you and I are not going to get sucked into this darkness, then we have to make a decision to walk in the light of God. If you're going to experience the peace of God, you've got to make the choice to take up the heart of God, the mind of God. And that is a choice that will be made for you on Monday. It is a choice that will be made on Tuesday. It will be a choice that you make on Wednesday. It's not an experience. It's not a one-time thing. It is as the wind's rage, I choose to rest in Christ. Cory Toon Boom, who her Dutch family hid Jews during the second war from the Nazis, saw her mother and father carried off and executed. She was thrown into a Nazi prison and she and her sister were starved to death and tortured. Interesting story. The guard who beat her sister to death later on in a meeting came to her and asked for forgiveness. Corey Boom wrote these words. If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look inside, you will be depressed. If you look to Christ, you will find rest. Choose, choose peace. Choose peace peace. Choose peace. It is the way of the king we follow. Let's pray. Lord God, walk with us. Open our minds. Open our hearts. Cause us to choose to walk in your ways. Cause us to choose as the bride of Christ be the solution and not part of the problem so that you might be glorified in the lives of those who are angry and that you might be glorified in the lives of those who are fearful may they find the king who has calmed the storm and brought us to a place of rest in Jesus name